0: For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com.
1: Hello, welcome to the History Hit World Wars podcast. I'm James Rogers, and in this episode, we're delving back through history to learn some lessons about pandemics and viruses from wartime that can teach us a little bit about the crisis that we're going through today. In fact, we can learn a bit about how it can impact elections because this is our US election special and we have one of the most famous historians in the world, Neil Ferguson, to talk us through this history of pandemics from the First World War and the Spanish flu through to our current period of chaos. We even hear a little about just how previous pandemics have shaken the political, economic and social core of society for far, far longer than we ever think and what this might mean for the US election in 2020. Now of course you know Neil from his PBS and BBC TV shows, and his best selling books The Pity of War, The Ascent of Money, and The Square and the Tower, to name just a few. He's written sixteen, but his latest book is Doom, The Politics of Catastrophe, where Neil sets the Great Crisis of twenty twenty, which is I'm sure is what it's going to be called in history, into its broad historical perspective. So Enjoy this episode as we live through an important period of history and await these monumental results from the US election. Hi Neil, thanks for coming on the podcast. My pleasure. Now, you've been warning about the threat of coronavirus since the World Economic Forum in Davos back in January 2020. What was it about being a historian that heightened your senses to the potential impacts of this pandemic? Had you been studying the economic impact of World War One and the Spanish flu so much that you started to see the warnings of history?
2: I think historians, if they do their job well, are better attuned to this kind of scenario, which doesn't happen very often, not often enough for it to be in everybody's living memory. Peter Frankopan, my friend and the well-known Oxford historian, did even better than me. I think he published a piece in Prospect at the end of 2019 saying that the next big thing would be a pandemic. So I'm not going to claim I was the only historian who picked up the signals And of course, many people had been writing and speaking about the danger of a pandemic. Who are not historians. Bill Gates is best known for this. But actually, if you go back to Larry Brilliant's fantastic TED Talk years ago, he correctly observed that we would likely have a pandemic and foresaw also that many countries would not react with sufficient speed to contain it. So I'm not claiming I was uniquely prescient, but January was an interesting time for me. I was Travelling in Asia in the early days of January, went to uh, Hong Kong, Taipei and Singapore and heard chatting to people and looking at local media about this new outbreak of a mysterious pneumonia, as it was called then in Wuhan. And that set my historian's brain racing because many pandemics in history have originated in East Asia. You don't need to go back that far. Think of SARS or even the 1957 Asian flu. Secondly, you don't want to believe the Chinese government when it says, oh, no human to human transmission, nothing to worry about. I knew enough about the history of communist China not to believe that. So I travelled to the World Economic Forum in mid-January, thinking we are almost certainly in the early stages of a pandemic, and was astonished to find that nobody there wanted to talk about that. It was an agenda, predictably, about climate change. Greta Thunberg was in town. And my attempts to change the subject to the approaching pandemic were, I think, on the whole, unsuccessful. I wrote a column grumbling about this in the Sunday Times. But I think the key reason why I saw that this was going to be hugely disruptive, because I didn't expect it to be a small epidemic, I sensed that it would be a global pandemic, was that over the years I've done a lot of work on contagion. War of the World talks about contagion in the context of World War II, but The Pity of War, which was published in the late 90s, had a little section on the Spanish influenza and the final phase of World War I. So that stuff had been part of my I suppose, research track record going back many years. More recently, I'd done a book called The Square and the Tower, which argued that you couldn't really understand the past without some grasp of network science. And a central idea of that book is that to understand contagion, you need to know not just the pathogen, the thing that is potentially going viral, you need to understand the social network it attacks. And of course, anybody who's done any work on the history of globalization knows that the world's never been more integrated than it was in January 2020. The sheer volume of traffic from Wuhan to the rest of the world was unprecedented. So it was all of those pieces of the jigsaw that I was able to put together in January. And I think I was one of the few columnists then who saw what was coming and rightly guessed the magnitude of the
1: shock. So you talk about human-to-human transmission and a bit about this history. So let's delve back into this history. And specifically, you mentioned the First World War. What can the First World War teach us about the spread of infection, about these human networks that allow infection to spread so rapidly across nations? Because we know that soldiers coming back from the First World War are said to have helped spread the Spanish flu. But like you say, in our globalised world, we're even less immune to international transmission.
2: That's right. The world has got more integrated. Travel speeds are much higher because people in 1918 got around by boat, not plane mostly. On the other hand, we've got better at medical science. One reason so many people died in 1918-19 was that there really were very few medical therapies available for the massive lung inflammation that was associated with that strain of influenza. And that's, I think, the main reason that the death toll was so high, there were no antibiotics. In fact, the history of pharmaceuticals was still at a very early stage. If you look back at the history of the 1918 so-called Spanish influenza, it was only called that because the Spanish press wasn't censored as Spain wasn't in the war. So Spanish reports were accurate, whereas the American press tried to hush up the initial outbreak. So the Spanish flu originated, as far as we can tell, on an American army base. And it was actually spread rapidly from base to base, from the US to Europe as infected soldiers crossed the Atlantic, and then it came back. There were three major waves of this pandemic. It was global. It spread very rapidly, despite the fact that people travelled by boat, not plane. It reached every country. Many of the countries worst affected were not actually combatants, so there wasn't a close association with the war itself. It was just that the world was sufficiently connected by shipping for this very contagious new strain of influenza to which very few people had resistance to spread rapidly and to get just about everywhere, including really quite disconnected parts of the world like the South Pacific or sub-Saharan Africa. It's a fascinating revelation of how integrated the world was in 1918-19 that that was possible. And while it's clear that the US Army was an important vector of transmission, it was by no means the only or even the most important of those vectors of transmission In fact, New York got the virus not from a Kansas army camp. It was actually travellers from Europe who brought it to New York. And the New York authorities failed to quarantine people who had shown symptoms on the transatlantic voyage. The thing that people forget is that the Spanish flu killed more people than the war. And I remember when I first discovered that in the 1990s, teaching at Oxford and writing the pity of war... Being slightly stunned, given that there are many more books about World War I than there are about the Spanish influenza, there was actually relatively little back then that one could read on the subject. And that's, I think, when I got fascinated by it. For example, it became clear to me, looking at the German archives, and particularly the German statistics, that one reason the German army collapsed in the summer of 1918, which it did in the face of a much improved British offensive, was sickness. The number of German soldiers reporting sick on the Western Front shot up in the summer of 1918. And I've often wondered if that was, in fact, influenza, showing up. The German army had learned from history the dangers of disease to armies. Typhus had historically brought many a military campaign to an end in Europe, going all the way back to the Middle Ages and continuing through to the Napoleonic era. So the Germans were well set up to prevent typhus devastating their army, but it looks as if there was a major spike in illness around about the critical moment of the war. German historians, Wilhelm Weiss, for example, used to say, oh, well, this was malingering that the German soldiers had lost more, And for political reasons, they were reporting sick. But he hadn't considered when he wrote the article along those lines that they might just have been succumbing to the same virus that was taking American soldiers out. And it was a virus that was particularly likely to kill you if you were a prime age person. It's unusual. Historically, most pandemics kill the very young and the very old. COVID 19 disproportionately kills the very old, and those of us who are parents should be very thankful for that. But oddly enough, the 1918 19 influenza disproportionately killed people in prime age and in good health, and that's why soldiers were so susceptible
1: to it. I mean, that's fascinating to hear because when you think of the First World War and understandings of PTSD, you know, that was known as shell shock or nostalgia, perhaps or cannonball wind if you go even further back. But you're saying that there was even misunderstandings of even basic illness and sickness. It's malingering at this point, as opposed to actually a pandemic, a flu.
2: Well, the world was still on the bunny slopes of understanding contagion. Even in the early 1900s, it still wasn't properly understood. For example, what caused bubonic plague? And international conferences going back to the 1860s had been sort of wrangling about that and about cholera. There were still intense debates about what caused cholera, even as the great epidemic of 1892 was devastating Hamburg. So one needs to remember that although medical science had made enormous leaps forward in a number of areas, bacteriology and there had been major breakthroughs in the understanding of key diseases amongst not only European scientists, but scientists all over the world, often working in colonial settings where they had a pretty big incentive to figure out things like yellow fever, There still wasn't actually tremendous knowledge or understanding of influenza, even although influenza pandemics had been a fairly familiar feature of the 19th century.
1: And as we talk about moving away from or exiting this period of world war and entering this period of global pandemic that, like you say, killed more people than died in combat during the First World War, what lessons can we take from that period about the recovery that we face now? There's being touted by so many different commentators that we're going to have a rapid V-shaped recovery or perhaps a less optimistic U-shaped recovery or so many different shapes of recovery. But what does this history of a great crisis like the First World War and the Spanish flu tell us about the likelihood of a rapid economic recovery? My core competence
2: is as an economic historian, so I hope to be able to give you a good answer to that question. When the V-shaped recovery predictions were being made early on in March, April, I was very sceptical about that for a couple of reasons. At first, pandemics are rarely one and done, a single wave, and then you get on with life. As I said, 1918 19 had three waves, 1957 58, two distinct waves. And so the idea that we would sort of be quickly done with COVID 19 struck me, even at the outset, as quite unlikely. Secondly, because of the nature of SARS-CoV-2 as a virus, there's a challenge to getting back to normal that is quite unusual. What's unusual is that the virus can be transmitted by asymptomatic people or pre-symptomatic people. It's quite unusual. The original SARS wasn't like that. People got ill and it was pretty obvious they were ill at the same time as they were contagious. Secondly, it turns out that SARS-CoV-2 spreads pretty easily in indoor environments when people are speaking, especially when they're shouting or singing. And it has a peculiar feature, which is associated with other coronaviruses. About 20% of people do 80% of the spreading. These are the so-called super spreaders. I tell you all this because I'm trying to illustrate how difficult it is to get back to normal in a lot of the things that we used to do under those circumstances. It is difficult to resume normal education. You really can't resume normal tourism. It's very difficult to resume normal shopping. It is extremely difficult to resume normal service in bars and restaurants. And everywhere that this has been attempted, there have been big increases in cases pretty soon after reopening or the return to normality. So we can't actually get back to normality to January 2020 as quickly as economists seem to assume because of the peculiar features of this disease. That's why in April I said that the recovery would be shaped like a giant tortoise. This was partly done out of frustration with those pedantic economists who'd come up with the inverted square root recovery. Ordinary people don't really know what you mean when you say that, but it's about the same idea. If you think about a giant tortoise, you start up quite high up on its back, but as you go forward, you slide down very steeply the shell and you get to the base of its neck, and then you go up its neck But you don't go all the way back up to the height of the shell because its head is quite some way below the shell and you get to its head. And we're kind of there. We've done that exact sequence of events. We came down very steeply in the period when, in March, April, economies were locked down. We've recovered quite rapidly in the course of the summer, especially in East Asia and Europe. But it turns out you can't get back to where you started because of these basic constraints on the things that just cause the disease to spread. So I think we have kind of trapped some maybe five, maybe 10% below where we started just by the nature of the disease itself and the extreme difficulty of returning to anything that involves gregariousness, even if people are wearing masks to a reasonably high percentage. The other thing that's worth thinking about here, which doesn't get discussed enough, is that there's never before been an economic policy response like this. In no previous pandemic, Did large swathes of the economy get shut down? In no previous pandemic, did governments order shelter in place, telling people to stay in their homes, not just for weeks, but months in the case of California, where I normally live? And so we had a really unprecedented supply-side shock. Nothing like this happened in 1918-19. There were some non-pharmaceutical interventions in some places, but there was nothing comparable with the lockdowns that we saw in the spring of 2020. At the same time, governments did this huge offsetting effort in fiscal and monetary policy to stop a complete implosion of the economy into 1930s-style depression. And that too was unprecedented. Essentially, we had the fiscal and monetary policies of World War I or World War II without the war, or the war was being waged against the so-called invisible enemy, the virus. But all of this doesn't really have a precedent that we can readily turn to as historians when we're trying to work out what happens next. I just think the economists didn't know enough about the history of pandemics to get this right. And that's why a number of them came up with the V-shaped story or the even worse analogy with the holiday town that shuts down during the winter season and then just reopens magically on Memorial Day. All kinds of eminent economists mentioning no names. Oh, well, why not? Paul Krugman, Larry Summers and others made this sort of analogy. And it just misunderstood the nature of the pandemic there's nothing in the history books to lead you to expect this to be over quickly. And that's why historians were much, much more reliable as commentators than economists, who by and large know just about nothing about the history of pandemics.
0: One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes.
3: Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt.
0: Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care.
1: But what about our history of scientific endeavour and human ingenuity and great industrial upheaval to meet the challenges of society? We see this during the First World War with the munitions crisis in 1915. We see it in the Second World War with the advancements of jet engines and even the Manhattan Project. Can we not take some hope from that experience of war and crisis that perhaps will allow us to see a vaccine created in the near future?
2: Well, a vaccine will be found, and I suspect three vaccines will be found in the near future. And the world has a capability for high-speed medical scientific research that really does recall some of the enormous leaps forward in science achieved during the World Wars. That's the good news. The bad news is that if you look back over, let's say, 200 years of scientific advance in medical science... We have simultaneously made ourselves more vulnerable to new pathogens so that the advances in terms of medical science have been somewhat offset by our advances in integrating our global economy and society. And so it's sort of a wash. Uh, Yeah, we can get to a vaccine really quickly, though actually not that much more quickly than in 1957, when a remarkable man named Morris Hillman pioneered the rush to find a vaccine for the uh, H2N2 influenza of that year. We kind of slowed down after that. Vaccine research turned out to get slower in the course of the late 20th century, We also had some notable failures, failure to find a vaccine for HIV. We've not really got a great vaccine for tuberculosis. We've kind of found that not everything is susceptible to successful vaccination. But I think the really critical point is that even as we have got faster at doing this kind of research, and it's been impossible not to be impressed by the way medical science goes about its business now, At a time when other parts of academic life seem to me distinctly degenerate, there's a tremendous vitality to international medical scientific research and the US and the UK still retain an impressive edge in this field. At the same time, we must recognise that we have made ourselves as a species more vulnerable than ever to new pathogens. Not just because you can fly from anywhere to anywhere like never before, not just because of the sheer volumes of people who travelled the world or used to before this pandemic, but also because, for example, the expansion of human settlements around the world increases the exposure of populations to notoriously virus-generating creatures like bats. There's just going to be more zoonotic pathogens as long as we continue to be very numerous and continue to intrude into parts of the planet that we didn't used to spend much time in. So I think it's kind of a wash. Things moved so, so fast at the beginning of this year that they took governments by surprise. And even although the pace of research and the speed with which we've moved towards a vaccine has been impressive, in truth, it is not going to be widely available to people until next year. And there's another point, James, which is really worth noting. Resistance to vaccination has grown. And it's grown partly because the internet is a fantastic vehicle for sharing crazy ideas about the downside risks of vaccination. So we know that somewhere around a third of Americans say ex ante they won't get that vaccine, even if it is available and that's something that you will find elsewhere. The polling is interesting on this. There's a lot of wariness towards vaccination. So I think we've also developed, in the form of the internet, a fantastic engine for the propagation of fake news and conspiracy theories. And that means that even if medical science really nails it and comes up with a fantastically effective vaccine, a lot of people will actually decline to get it.
1: And of course, I mean there was a glimmer of hope at the beginning there but it seemed to quickly fade and you're talking about the accidental transmission of such a virus but of course we can also take into account the deliberate creation and transmission of infection as well especially as the world has been seen to be so vulnerable and the United States are vulnerable to COVID. And this actually leads me into my next question because I read your latest article in Bloomberg News and this is also about human aggression especially after periods of pandemic because you speak in that article about how Joe Biden, if elected as President of the United States, could end up being a wartime president. Because as you argue, history suggests post-pandemic peace are rare and democratic wars are not. Where do you see these patterns in our recent history?
2: Well, I was listening to Joe Biden's acceptance speech at the virtual Democratic National Convention and thinking, what does this remind me of? And the answer was the acceptance speeches of most successful Democratic candidates going all the way back to Woodrow Wilson. So I went back and I'm this kind of historian. I read through all the acceptance speeches at all the conventions. And what's really striking is that the Democratic candidates for the presidency always give speeches about their grand social policy plans about the ways in which they're going to increase entitlements, the ways in which they're going to improve life for ordinary Americans in a variety of ways. And this goes back to Wilson, and it continues, of course, through Franklin Roosevelt's New Deal. And it's there in Harry Truman's Fair Deal, and it's obviously central to Lyndon Johnson's Great Society. And what's fascinating to me is that each of the presidents I've just named having started out with a domestic political agenda, having started out saying almost nothing about foreign policy, ended up taking the United States into really big wars. Now, listeners with, let's say, a relatively recent focus in their historical knowledge will say, but but George W. Bush, but both George W. Bush and his father, George H. W. Bush, were unusual as Republican presidents in taking the country into wars. And the wars that they took the country into were quite small by comparison with World War I, World War II, the Korean War, the Vietnam War. There were democratic presidents, of course, who tried to keep out of wars in the recent past. Bill Clinton certainly lived in fear of some other Vietnam coming along and had to be dragged kicking and screaming into the Bosnian War. And, of course, Barack Obama felt that the lesson of the Bush presidency was not to get involved in war in the Middle East, though even he found it difficult to extract himself. So I think one doesn't want to overstate the case, but I think it's reasonable to argue that in the context of 2020, a very likely scenario in 2021 is an escalation of conflict with China. I've been writing about this now for more than a year and a half, arguing that we're already in Cold War II this time it's with the People's Republic of China, not the Soviet Union, that that Cold War wasn't started by Donald Trump, that in many ways Trump was a reaction against Chinese policies that were in various ways challenging the United States. And what I think is going to happen, and it's just a speculation, but on the basis of historical form is that if Joe Biden wins, and that's by no means guaranteed, but if he wins and is president, he's going to be confronted by a crisis over Taiwan very imminently. And I think that crisis will be a very difficult one for his administration to cope with, especially if, say, Michelle Flournoy is at defence. She seems like his most likely pick to be Secretary of Defence. She committed herself in a piece in foreign affairs to an extremely, I'd say, combative strategy towards China, arguing that current policy doesn't sufficiently deter China with respect to Taiwan or the South China Sea. So you would have an administration that was actually quite hawkish on China, suddenly confronted, if I'm right, with a showdown over Taiwan, and facing the very same dilemma that Woodrow Wilson faced in World War One and Franklin Roosevelt faced in World War II, it's very difficult for the United States, as the world's most powerful player today, just to say, oh, well, just let them have Taiwan. <laughs> because if the Chinese launch an amphibious invasion of Taiwan, the choices are very stark. You either roll over and accept that your commitment to Taiwan was worthless, a commitment dating back to 1979, or you face the very difficult difficult strategic problem of trying to get them out of Taiwan, which as my colleague at the Hoover Institution, Misha Austin, has recently written, would be very, very difficult and might even fail, given the vulnerability of uh, US aircraft carrier groups to land-based Chinese missiles. So it wouldn't at all be against the run of play historically for a newly elected democratic president who was firmly committed to a domestic political agenda to find himself blown off course by a geopolitical crisis.
1: Neil, thank you so much. History cannot predict, we know this, but the history that you've provided us is such a useful lens to analyse the current crisis that we're going through. Where can our listeners read more about your work? Well, I write books. I'm
2: quite old-fashioned that way. My new book is entitled Doom, The Politics of Catastrophe and will be published by Penguin early next year. I write every two weeks now for a Bloomberg Opinion. You can find that very easily online. And if you're so impatient to read my work that you just can't wait until Doom comes out, I think I already referenced a few good reads. The Square and the Tower, which I think was the first attempt to bring network science to historiography. And you certainly can't understand 2020 without some network science. Or The Pity of War on World War I. War of the World on World War II. I've written 16 books now, so it would be tedious to go through them all. But as they say, available at
1: all good bookstores. And if you want to start your library, you can start with those 16. Thank you so much, Neil. Thank you, James.